So um, <clears throat> the ritual that we've decided to do, Ed, is to offer everybody a drink. You don't have to drink alcohol. If you do, I will. If you don't, I won't. We also have caffeinated beverages and water and such. Do you have a beer? I sure do. Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. My guest on the podcast today is Ed Sarachik. Ed has for a few years now been retired from a long and distinguished career, the last several decades of which he spent at the University of Washington, where I met Ed when I was a postdoc there in the late 90s. I had just started working on tropical meteorology, having done my PhD on a different subject, so I was trying to get up to speed on the tropics quickly. And I sat in on a class in tropical meteorology that Ed taught. I learned a great deal, a lot that I still remember today, but I also really appreciated Ed's frank and no-nonsense, but still very warm manner, and you'll hear that in this interview. Decades later, Ed published a textbook with Mark Kane containing the material from the course that I took, and more, and I use that textbook to this day in my own teaching now. So my intellectual connection with Ed goes from my start in this field right up to the present. Ed describes himself first as an oceanographer, and he started there writing a series of foundational papers on the dynamics of the equatorial ocean uh, with Mark Cain in the late 70s. But he's worked for many decades since on climate problems, especially those that involve coupling between the ocean and the atmosphere, as well as on the atmosphere itself. And he's done important work on decadal variability, interannual variability, including ENSO, climate change, the role of the ocean in all of these. And he also kept up a strain of work on basic dynamics of the equatorial atmosphere and ocean, like what's in his book. Ed has mentored quite a few students who've gone on to great things, including David Battisti, whose early work on ENSO under Ed we'll hear about in the interview. And then later, around the turn of the millennium, Michaela Biasuti, my colleague and friend, and the guest on the first episode we ever released on this podcast, did her PhD with Ed and David both. So Ed fits right into the academic family portrait that this first season of Deep Convection has wound up painting. Speaking of painting, Ed might be a great scientist, but that's not all he's about. And in fact, when he started talking to me about his undergraduate education, the first thing he mentioned, although he was a physics major, was an art class and how study of a painting in that class led to a lifelong engagement with art that continues to this day. And it's mostly what he's about now that he's retired. If there's a single theme to this podcast, it's how science fits together with all the other things that make up human beings. So I thought it was very fitting that we started there. But we start a little before that with Ed's beginnings in Brooklyn, including his family's escape from Eastern Europe before he was born in the early 20th century, and then through Ed's early education and the beginning of his scientific career as a physicist, before we get to how he entered our field. And Ed struggled for a bit first as a young physicist trying to make a career in a time of federal budget cuts for science in the 70s, but things turned around when he met Jewel Charney, the great atmospheric scientist who taught so many that became leaders in our field, and who brought Ed into it, and we'll hear about that moment from Ed. Ed then joined a close-knit group of graduate students and postdocs at MIT that included many others who went on to become leaders in our field. We also talk about many other subjects, including how Ed got into climate impacts, in other words, how climate affects people, after he got to the University of Washington, and why he thinks current climate models are poorly suited to that work and how they should be reformulated. Lastly, one special note about this episode. Although we're releasing it near the end of our first season, it's actually the very first interview I recorded for the podcast last May 2019. We just decided to do the podcast and Ed happened to be in town. So I asked him if he'd do it. He agreed. And I'm so happy he did. It was a great start. So with that, let's get to the start of this interview. 
here is my conversation with Ed Sarachik. Hey. Cheers, Ed. Yeah. You should probably know that seven of us are writing a paper for the Bulletin of the AMS, and it's called The View from the 14th Floor. All seven of us basically met on the 14th floor of MIT. The people are Mark Kane, myself, Inez Fung, uh, Yagada Shukla, George Philander, wow. uh, Eugenia Kalne, and Antonio Davino Mora. Wow, you were all the same cohort? Like within a couple of years or yeah. something? Wow. Uh, yeah, and we've pretty much stuck together. Whenever there's a meeting, we usually have a dinner. And the whole idea of the thing is uh, that we got together, we did a lot of things together on the 14th floor. Uh, we used to talk to each other, have parties, get a coffee together, do things like that. And then uh, 50 years later or 40 years later, we still talk a lot. We meet when we have uh, an AMS meeting or an AGU meeting. Uh, I think it's remarkable that we've stayed together for so long. It is remarkable. I mean, for I want to say, I mean, we have one of the things about this uh, is that we haven't quite decided, you know, to what extent we're going to try to translate everything for people who are not in our field. But just, I mean, to say for anybody who doesn't know it, that's quite a remarkable list of scientists, uh, people that have had it, every one of them, um, yourself included, have had uh, amazing careers and and, well, uh, and are f famous to those of us who work in this area. MIT was a remarkable place. I don't think it will ever happen again that we will have faculty the likes of Charney, Stommel, Lorenz, uh, Phillips uh, in the Applied Math Department, Harvey Greenspan, uh, Willem Malkus, uh, Steve Orsag, uh, Carl Bender. Yeah. It was an absolutely remarkable time to be there. Yeah. I mean, well, it was a different time for the field, too. But, but yeah, the history of the place. I mean, I of course, I went through there much later. Um, by that time, uh, the faculty was different. And 14th floor was physical oceanography. Um, by that time. Well, I'm an oceanographer. But not everybody in that list was. I mean, or uh, was there even a distinction at that? I mean, how did that work then? Uh, I should probably tell you how I got there and how I got to be an oceanographer. Okay, so let's do that. Okay, so where are you from, Ed? Okay, I was born, I was born in New York City. I lived here till I was 19. Went to the Bronx High School of Science. No kidding. Wait, 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 wait. wait. My dad went to the Bronx. When did you graduate? Uh, I graduated in 1956. Okay, so you're, wait, oh, that might be about, let's see. So my dad was born 38, so you must have been pretty close. To him. Yeah. I was born in 41, but I skipped a few years in there. I know that Dick Lindzen graduated a year after my dad. Uh, I him. was in Dick Lindzen's class, although I did not know him at the time. <laughs> uh, when I went well, then back. You were a year, then you were a year behind my dad. Then. When I went back and I looked at the yearbook, uh, there he was, and I had no idea. Uh, so, went, okay, wait a second, wait a second. So which borough? Where did you, where'd you grow up in there? Oh, geez. Uh, I was born in the Bronx, uh, moved to the Lower East Side, uh, took piano lessons at the Henry Street Settlement. Wow. Uh, my father owned a laundry on Grand Street and then Clinton and Grand Street, one block up from the Williamsburg Bridge. Your folks immigrants or are they? Uh, my yes, both of them were born in Poland near Warsaw. Uh -huh. My father... A little bit outside Warsaw, my mother inside Warsaw. Uh, they came after World War One. Yeah. 
my mother's story was really interesting because it was her sister who had the ticket for the ship. And she kept worrying about it. And then the sister eventually decided the United States was a wild and wide open place in which culture could not possibly exist. And my mother said, I'll take it. So my mother took the ticket, uh, came to the United States. Uh, they knew people here. Uh, my father and my mother met uh, in the in the labor union movement. My father was a shoe worker at the time. My mother was a millinery worker. Uh, and they met and did labor organizing together. We're members of the uh, Socialist Workers Party, the Trotskyite Party. Yeah. So, I mean, this story is almost the same as my grandparents. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, uh, I mean, in many, even, even down to the broad, well, not the part about the sister. What happened to that sister who stayed behind? Didn't make it through the Holocaust. Jeez. So, uh, there she was staying in cultured Europe and she was killed. Uh, I don't know if it was Auschwitz or where. Yeah. Did you have many, I mean, how many people from your uh, folks' families made it, made it out? A remarkable number of people did make it out. Some of them made it through the war in various ways. My parents in 1946 uh, read a book by a well-known Polish socialist named Bernard Goldstein. It was called The Stars. Well, the, the U.S. title was The Stars Bear Witness. And he talks about the Jewish policeman Sheracek, which was my original name before uh, Ellis Island, yeah. and his brother, uh, who lived at the mercy of a Christian landlord, uh, he would make perfumes. He was a chemist. He would make perfumes, and the chemist and the landlord would sell this the perfumes, and he made it through the war that way. His son, Yeji, oh. who then became Jerry Sears at uh, Ellis Island, uh, was put in a farmhouse and made it through the war because the righteous among all nations, Christians who took care of Jews, uh, irregardless of their own safety, kept them during the war. Uh, a niece of his made it through. She was blonde and blue-eyed, and she was put in a nunnery. Uh, and there was a huge discussion about, uh, well, if she makes it through the war, will she be Jewish after she gets out? Well, it turns out she did make it through the war. She did get out. She was Jewish. She said the major effect was her knees were a bit flat from praying. <laughs> so the, but the bottom line is you, do, you did have a few relatives here. I mean, who, yes. who uh, from the old country. Cousins. Uh, my father had five brothers who act, and sister, one sister, four brothers who made it here. Uh, a couple did not. My mother had uh, one brother and three who did not. Yeah. Did you grow up religious at all or not? No, not at all. None of that. Socialists, they dropped it, right? That's uh, my, 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 father, my people too. My father's father was a Rav. Uh, yeah, who was basically a low-level rabbi. He used to uh, make low-level judgments about if a drop of milk fell into a chicken soup, could, <laughs> could you then drink it? Things like that. Uh, my father, when he came over here, had had it. Wanted yeah. no part of it. Uh, so I had no part of it. I think that was common to the ones who moved to socialism. I'm sure. I'm sure. So, yeah, so you go to so then you go to science. It's a long commute from the Lower East Side. Uh, I was in Queens when 
Oh. I went to science. I used to travel an hour and a quarter in each direction. Needless to say, I was not at my uh, perky best when I got there and uh, when I got home. Uh, I then went to Queens College for a number of reasons, one of which I was 15 when I graduated science. And there weren't that many schools who would accept you if you were that young. Two, I didn't have the money anyhow. Right. Uh, when my brother went to Columbia, he was at science also. His wife was at science. His wife's brother was at science. Uh, when my brother went to Columbia, he got a New York State scholarship, which paid $1,400, I remember. And four years at Columbia was $1,400. Yeah. When I did it, he's 10 years older than I am. When I did it, I won the same state scholarship. It was the same $1,400. And that would pay about 40% of it. I didn't have the rest. My parents weren't very well off. So I went to Queens, uh, which was... An average school, exceptionally good for music. I learned a lot of music. I learned a little bit about art. Uh, one of the formative art experiences in my life happened because of it. Should I tell you? Please. Okay. Uh, we had an art teacher who, as a final exam, passed out postcards of artworks in New York City museums, free museums. The Frick was free at the time. And I got one that was a Vermeer in the Frick. And the assignment was describe why the postcard falsifies the original. In other words, it wasn't an exact copy. More than that. What was it about this little thing from which you couldn't get a real picture of the true artistic quality of the original. Part of it, of course, was scale. Part of yeah. it was printing. Part of it was color registration. Right. Uh, a whole set of other things. But it meant I actually had to look at the Vermeer carefully. Yeah. And for the first time in my life, I looked at a picture. I must have stood there for two hours looking at that. And as with most Vermeers, you're looking from the dark into the light and there's a window on the side, and the sun is shining in from the left. Yeah. And how you get the gradations of tone so that you can see from the dark to the light yeah. is remarkable. You don't see it at first, but you do see it after a while when you're looking. Yeah. And as I was looking, that window panel started glowing. It was so bright. The, the sun was on it. I thought it was absolutely remarkable. I looked at the postcard. It was nothing. It was bland. It was yeah. you couldn't see from the dark into the light. So I had my essay. Uh, I had it accomplished a number of things. I actually saw a painting for the first time. Two, I realized that a painting is not just the subject matter. The painter just doesn't paint the middle. He paints everything. Uh, yeah. Everything counts. Uh, and just describing. A painting goes a long way to seeing a painting. So when I look at a painting now, uh, and unfortunately it takes a long time, that's why I go to the Met every morning when I'm in New York, uh, I look at the entire painting. I look at uh, every part of it. If it's a portrait, why did he choose the background? Uh, Matisse was remarkable because he chose a background that was highly decorated. That's really hard to do because... Most Rembrandt would 
have a portrait of the person in the center and then sort of just a gray or featureless background. Uh, Art is extremely interesting. The the concept of putting things on a two-dimensional surface is infinitely variable. And uh, I have never tired of it. It's just, art is exceptional. So, I mean, is it, it, sorry, it's not a, I take it it's not completely incidental that in this discussion of how you became an oceanographer, this is the first thing you mentioned about your higher education. I mean, Uh, it seems to be, uh, well, let me put it this way. Uh, If it wasn't for art and music, I don't think I would have been as good a scientist as I am. It provided an outlet. I can't do, although there have been times when I've done science 12 and 14 hours a day, uh, there's also times when I neglected it entirely and looked at pictures and listened to music, and that's it regenerates. Uh, it's something different. Uh, I find it absolutely necessary for for my existence, for my intellectual satisfactions. But is it just something different that's a release, or do you think there's any connection between that and your scientific uh, work? Is there any anything you're conscious I, of? That- no, I honestly don't know. I did notice when I was at Brandon, oh, after, I, I'll get back to this, but after I graduated at Queens, I went to Berkeley for a year in theoretical physics. So wait, wait, Queens, you're a physics major or what? I was a physics major. I started as a literature major, but uh, after a year, I realized unless I took a lot of mathematics, it would, I would never be able to do it. So I chose something where I would take a lot of mathematics, not necessarily the topology type, but the uh, applied mathematics type. What do you mean you wouldn't be able to do it? You wouldn't be able to be a a literature major? because If I had been a literature major and graduated as a literature major, I don't think I could have switched into physics in graduate school. So you already had that intent? Uh, I I wanted to leave that option open. I see. Uh, So I was a literature major for like one year. I took... I read Ulysses more carefully than almost anybody I know. Uh, I wrote several papers about it. I tried to read Finnegan's Wake with as much uh, success as most other people have, namely zero. Yeah, I got a but, few pages once. But. but it has some really nice things, like there's a Thus Buke Zero Thruster. Uh, the man was a genius. It's, it's just that I couldn't read all 1,000 pages of it. Anyhow. Uh, so you well, go to Berkeley for a year. I went to Berkeley for a year. Uh, I learned a lot. Uh, the applied math was taught by a man, man named Bernard Friedman, who wrote a book uh, called Principles of Applied Mathematics. I learned a tremendous amount. Uh, but it was too big. Uh, I had a university fellowship. Uh, never met never sat next to the same person twice. The applied math course had 350 people in it. Uh, the physics department had 250 people in it. It was, mm. it was overwhelming. It was just too big for me. So I looked around and people told me Brandeis is a good small department. So I decided to go to Brandeis, which I uh, finished and got my degree in 65. So what, you're doing a physics PhD in Brandeis? Yes. Uh, theoretical physics, uh, although it had a large mathematical component. What were you working on? Uh, 
This would be impossible to explain in a reasonable amount of time, but the title of my thesis was Complex Propagator Insertions in the Square Diagram, and it was the analytic properties of a Feynman diagram in which one of the legs was which was just a line in the Feynman diagram was replaced by something considerably more complex. And what year did you get your... 65. Uh, December of 65. Five. I think. So the Feynman diagrams were not that old. I mean, that was... Uh, well, they haven't been around that long, all that stuff. Uh, at, at Berkeley, the first thing we did before we understood... This was in the quantum mechanics course. We learned how to calculate Feynman diagrams. We had no idea what we were doing. We just learned the rules. <laughs> <laughs> and that turned out to be very useful because by the time we did know what, what we were doing, uh, I knew how to do those calculations already. This was all about something. Uh, oh, art. Yeah. Uh, at Brandeis, and music actually, at Brandeis I noticed that they used to put on, Brandeis had an orchestra and they also brought people in from outside. And they had some good chamber musicians, so they used to put on free chamber concerts. And I noticed that the only people who would go to the to the concerts were from the physics department. The mathematicians never did. And I thought about that a lot. And I know that I have a very auditory memory. When I write a paper... I write it as a story, which I tell to myself, and it has to be coherent as a story. Yeah. Uh, I've talked to a lot of mathematicians, and they have visual memories. It doesn't mean they like art. It just means they have visual memories. They don't particularly like music, although some do. Yeah. So it was interesting. I got to think a little bit about just exactly when I'm when I finally think of the solution to something, it always comes as somebody talking to me rather than my seeing it. It's interesting, Ed, you know, so, uh, so I was a double major in physics and music, first oh, of all. There you go. I tried to be a musician for a while, didn't work out, and I went back to physics. But anyway, um, I don't know that I have an auditory memory, but it's true that when I write a paper, I'm all about the words. Yep. And I have a lot of people that I work with who are all about the figures, and they stress over the figures. I'm usually happy with the figures before any of my co-authors. I say it's fine, looks good, and they they're they're working or worrying about the colors and where the lines are. I'm I go nuts over the, every sentence, but you know, so so know. it's a good it's good working with people who are visual because I I'm know not exactly <laughs> what you're saying. Mike Wallace at the University of Washington was a figure guy, and I was a word guy, and. I always appreciated the quality of his figures. He really yeah. knew what he was well, doing. He knew how to, I mean, he, he knows how to make those exactly. couple of figures tell a story. Exactly. Yeah. I don't think he's ever gone to a concert, though. <laughs> <laughs> but what do I know? I don't know. Yeah, I, I prefer the concerts, too. Anyhow, so I got a PhD in uh, physics. Uh, I did a postdoc at Stanford uh, in the particle physics group at the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. Mm. And during that year... My office mate was Chaim Harari, who became the president of uh, the Technion. I think that's right. No, not the Technion. Uh, one of the other universities in Israel, I forgot. These people were infinitely clever. I mean, they were really, really, really clever. I began to realize physics is advanced by maybe 10 or 20 people. And I wasn't one of them. Mm. 
Uh, so I didn't think I had a real future in particle physics. It was just, I knew a fair amount of quantum field theory. I knew a fair amount of SU3 and 4 and things like that. Uh, but when I got to Stanford, everybody was talking about work that Murray Gelman had just done. Uh, I didn't know anything about it. I spent some time learning about it. When you spend time learning rather than doing, you fall further behind in physics. It just wasn't for me. Yeah. So I decided this this wasn't going to work. Uh, I then got a job at uh, the NASA Electronics Research Center in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, That's something that doesn't exist anymore, does it? Uh, it stopped existing three years after I worked there, and I was out of work. Okay. Uh, this was Nixon's first budget. Uh, Ted Kennedy brought it to Massachusetts in a campaign that said he can do more for Massachusetts. Nixon cut it in his first budget to make sure that Ted Kennedy couldn't do more for Massachusetts. And, of course, I knew nothing about this. I was in California at the time. Uh, I didn't know any of the politics. I didn't know why I was there. I did know they were looking for a laser physicist, uh, and I thought I could do that. So I got there. Had you done it, though? I mean, or was this just uh, – I'm always interested in how this works, how people – Get jobs and how they go into different things. It didn't sound like you were working with lasers up to now. I didn't really know anything about it. Uh, on the other hand, I, I had a good PhD and I had a good postdoc from Stanford right. and they were willing to hire me. It was not a prestigious job. So this is NASA pre-16. What year are we in? Is it pretty uh, moonshot we, or? No. Uh, the moonshot was while I worked there. That's so you worked right. there in 69. I worked there. I worked there from 66 to 60 to 70. That must have been exciting. Uh, I was in Copenhagen at the time. Uh, <laughs> I just mean the whole thing. I mean, that time for NASA. Yeah. Not I, really. I was doing, <laughs> we had somebody doing space qualified lasers. In other words, you can't just put a laser up there. It has to adhere to certain properties. It has to have certain strengths. It has to have certain qualities. Uh, so I was involved with that. Uh, not so much with the entire NASA mission. And you didn't I, feel a part of it? I mean, you didn't feel... No. And in fact, that was a problem because when I lost a job, you know, in the government, you're supposed to say, I lose a job, you're supposed to give me another job in government. But I, my qualification was called space optics. Well, that was the only place that did space optics. So <laughs> Goddard, which would have been fine with me... Uh, they take your application, they put it in a file cabinet, and you never hear from them again. When I got canned from NASA, there were no jobs in physics because the Nixon budgets basically had guaranteed that 40% of the PhDs in the field had left the field. It was decimated. Wait, this is amazing. I want to talk about this for a second because, you know, when I went to grad school, which was the early 90s, the picture we had was that you know, back then it had been like gravy train, you know, heaven, that everything was easy. And you're saying it, physics tanked in 1970? Yep. Had I been had I been three or four years older, I would have gotten tenure and would have had a decent life. But, uh, it's a very seasonal occupation. If you get your PhD at the wrong time, uh, it could be the difference between a brilliant career and a non-existent career. And I think that's true right now also. 
Well, right now, let's get to right now later. Right now is, is disturbing in so many ways. But, but believe me, they're still saying we need climate people. We need meteorologists. We need oceanographers. Somebody's saying that. Somebody is saying that. People are believing it, and they're going to have an enormous amount of problems, or some of them will when they graduate. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's already been true for a while. It's already been hard for a while. I have a feeling it's always been true, except for those golden years from Sputnik to 1970. Yeah. Okay, so you lose the job at NASA. Right. Nixon cuts the budgets. Then what happens? So I was applying like crazy to various places with absolutely no success. One guy there, Jerry Grams, was a laser experimentalist and... Uh, I said, Jerry, uh, so what are you going to do? And he says, uh, gee, I don't know. I haven't really started looking yet. Uh, I said, aren't you worried? He says, no, no, I'll get a job. Uh, he calls up Anchor and he gets a job. I said, something funny is going on here. Uh, turns out he got his degree in meteorology for laser probing of the atmosphere, which the Electronics Research Center was very interested in. On the basis of a single phone call, he made it, he got a job at uh, Anchor. So I said, how did you do that? And he says, well, I have a PhD in meteorology, which in my head was always weather forecasting and drawing maps and doing things like that. So I said, really, tell me about that. Uh, he says, well, I got, got my degree at MIT, which was, we were in Kendall Square, so that was across, across the street. He said, why don't you go and talk to the chairman of the department? So I did. He sits me down. He talks to me about uh, the wonders of meteorology. I was looking at the, uh, the sailboats on the Charles River because he had an office on the 16th floor that was looking down. I know it well, those windows, yeah. <laughs> uh, I thought that was just the greatest view in the world. And every once in a while, I'd hear what he was saying. And he said, so why don't you go and talk to uh, Joel Charney? I said, okay, where do I find him? He says, go down to the 14th floor and knock on his door. He'll probably talk to you. Uh, so I go downstairs, knock on the door. Uh, Joel Charney answers. Uh, I said, uh, the chair sent me down to talk to you. He says, okay, Arthur, could you... Uh, step outside, I'll be finished in a little bit. Turns out this guy, Arthur Bass, had been waiting to see Charney for six months. Finally got in to see Charney. Uh -huh. I knock on the door. Uh, I talked to Charney for hours, must have been. I remember it was a little bit after lunch when I went there. And the last bus that went along Broadway, I lived on Hancock Street in Cambridge, huh. uh, left at 6.30 and I said, Jewel, I have to go uh, because the last bus is at 6.30. So I was there for, for something like five hours uh, talking to him. About what? Just about everything. Uh, I said, you know, I really don't know very much about this, uh, but I'm a physicist. We talked about physics. We talked about applied mathematics. We talked about uh, current problems in meteorology, which he explained to me, and I didn't understand at all, needless to say. Uh, and he says, well, why don't you uh, come as a student for a year and see if you like it? But wait, I want to understand this moment with Charney. Yeah. Uh, I mean, who's such a legendary figure in the field. And I mean, I know many of his students. I never, I, you know, I never had the opportunity to meet him. But, but I mean, you said this other uh, guy was waiting six months to meet him. You walked in and talked to five hours. 
what, what happened there? I mean, is it that nobody with a PhD in physics ever walked into Charney's office? Is that you had some special bond that just was immediately apparent? Did you catch him on a good day? Or, I mean, what the heck? How did that work? What did you do uh, right? Or, 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 or? We were simpatico. Uh, we just, we talked some politics, I remember. He was a, uh, an L.A. liberal and I was a New York liberal. Uh, it, we just got along. Uh, we talked about a number of different things. As you can tell, I, I'm not exactly linear in my, That's in all my, right. That's in my all thinking right. or talking, nor was he. And we just talked and enjoyed it. It was, it was really fun. Uh, he made no commitments to me, but I said, I'll see what I could do. Uh, so I, I spent, uh, four quarter, three quarters at MIT. They have a quarter system. Uh, or maybe it's a Not semester, anymore, a semester and a month. They have another, a January term thingy. Yeah, yeah. I think it was that way then. Uh, I, I said, Jules, can you, you know, pick up some of this? Because I had no funding at all. My, I was married at the time. My wife was working. She was doing quite well. She was a programmer. For uh, whom? Uh, the Magnet Lab at MIT. Oh, okay. Uh, she was a very good programmer. And afterwards, she was, uh, she got a job at Harvard uh, programming for a proposed jitney service and she would do you're supposed to call in and uh sign up i'm sure it was 25 years before it's time uh she did a lot of the programming for that uh so yeah he said i can make you a research assistant the way students are yeah paid me a few thousand dollars or something like that i had worked at the transportation system center in the summer I got canned in uh, June. I worked the summer at the Transportation Systems Center. I spent a year at, as a student at MIT. I worked the following summer at the Transportation Systems Center. And in that year, I had applied for an NSF fellowship, which was specifically for those physicists who had lost their jobs. It was so prevalent a problem that they created a special fellowship program for Wow. It. It's like in when the Soviet Union collapsed and all those Russian bomb guys got picked up. There was some program for that. I think maybe even the U.S. paid for it. Right. You were kind of like the local version of that. <laughs> the local disaster. <laughs> right. So, uh, and he actually made up, I remember it paid $6,000 a year. At NASA, I was making $22,000. Uh, this fellowship paid six thousand. He brought it up to ten thousand. So I was making less than half of what I was making before as a postdoc. Uh, the MIT years were very fruitful because I knew nothing. I really did know nothing. Uh, I didn't know the Navier-Stokes equation. I knew SU four. I knew SU seven. I did not know the Navier-Stokes. But, but wait, wait, hold on. Let's get the overall outline of this thing. So you come there on a student fellowship, although you're not actually a student. I sort of was a student. You sort of were a student. So and I took as many courses as I could. I took a course from Lorenz. I took a course from, uh, I took a number of courses in the applied math department. The second year I was a postdoc, George Philander had gone off to Bracknell 
to bring oceanography into the GARP Atlantic Tropical Experiment gate. So at Bracknell is the UK Met Office? Right. UK Meteorological Office. Yep. Gate was run from Bracknell. And Gate was the big tropical field program in the 70s that was at that time just started. Storms coming off Senegal uh, basically would come into the Atlantic. And it was mostly a meteorology program, but they wanted it to be, WMO wanted it to be, an atmosphere ocean program. So they got George at Bracknell to try to produce some sort of uh, oceanographic consciousness and activity. So GATE, this program, is the GARP Atlantic Tropical Experiment. GARP was another acronym, uh, Global Atmospheric Research Program. And this That's ended correct. up being a huge field campaign with many ships and many planes in right. the Atlantic off of Africa. But, Everybody, yeah. I think, who was involved in tropical meteorology of that generation was was there in the field. It was much larger than anything that's been done since. Basically right. And so this was the buildup to it. And, but, and but no oceanographic program in the planning. Right. No oceanographic program. And so Philander was charged with modeling the equatorial undercurrent, which is... Or at least producing something that looked like an oceanographic component of the GATE program. Right. But the equatorial undercurrent, I mean, this is going to be important later, I know, is the is on the equator uh, in the... Well, I guess this was in the Atlantic. But the, in the, winds, Pacific, the, the, the winds go from the east to the west, but the equatorial undercurrent goes from the west to the east. Right. So the, the current at some depth on the equator is going the opposite way from the winds are pushing it, and that's sort of mysterious. And so you guys were... Well, it actually turns out to be the winds set up the pressure gradient, and the pressure gradient drives because the... Uh, sea level is higher at the western part of the uh, basin than it is in the eastern part of the basin. Yeah. So it produces a eastward pressure gradient, and that drives the equatorial. But undercurrent. did you know that already at that time, or was uh, that something that was sort of? But we didn't know anything about its variability. We didn't know how to model it. We didn't know. Uh, There's a lot we didn't know. And the Atlantic has it has one too, or not? Yes. Uh, only the Indian Ocean, where the mean winds are actually in the opposite direction, right. uh, doesn't. Okay. So the Pacific has a strong one. The Atlantic has a strong one, but it's highly variable, more variable than the, as usual in the Atlantic, things vary with timescales of one year in the Pacific, uh, things vary interannually. So the equatorial undercurrent varies with the El Nino scale in the Pacific. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, so George asks uh, Charney, uh, he wants somebody to help him build or to build a model of the equatorial undercurrent. I happened to be in Charney's office when the call came. Charney turns around, and there I am. <laughs> uh, believe me, this changed my life, although at the time I didn't know it. I do believe it, because I know what happened after. Well, some of it. So Charney looks at me and he says, uh, how'd you like, after he hangs up with George, how'd you like to make a model of the equatorial undercurrent? And I said, what do I know about oceanography? He says, you'll learn. Okay. So I spent six months learning oceanography uh, by myself. I learned what baroclinic and barotropic modes were, learned what the equatorial undercurrent is. I learned the measurement techniques by which people measuring the ocean, dropping things, uh, uh, the static ways of measurement uh, where you measure density and the dynamic ways where you try to measure uh, currents 
So I learned a tremendous amount of oceanography. I realized that a two-layer model really wouldn't do it because if you take a two-layer model, the equilibrium state has no currents. Uh, it is a solution, and therefore it's the unique solution because this is a linear problem. So you could not get an equatorial undercurrent with a two-layer model. The only thing anybody was doing was a two-layer model. The two-layer model represents the ocean as two right. slabs of different densities, but each one is uniform. It's like you have two right. chunks of water that are that exactly. are uniform within them, and the different the, the stratification of the lighter water on top of heavier water is just that the top layer is lighter. Exactly. And so it's a simpler model of the ocean. So we realized, I realized, uh, that you have to do something different, and I realized you had to have a surface layer at the top that in which the winds are felt, it could drive uh, pressure gradients, and it was the pressure gradient that would drive the equatorial undercurrent. So <clears throat> I knew the kind of model that needed to be set up. Just one thing, I never learned how to program. So after six months, I was supposed to sit down and start programming. Well, strangely enough, I went to coffee, on the ninth floor, everybody went to coffee on the ninth floor at three o'clock. Uh, some people still in my time, something like that. I can't quite remember, but it was we still had some some version of that. Uh, people who arrived thirty seconds late could not get cookies because the graduate students were really good at this. <laughs> so I don't think I ever had a cookie on the ninth floor, but I had coffee. So. Mark Kane had joined the department and he was a student or he was a as a student. Yeah. Uh, and he says he really wants to get out in a year or two because he was married and uh, I believe Barbara was pregnant at the time and he wanted to get out. He said, I think I have something for you that you could get out. That's a model of the equatorial undercurrent. And he says, what do I know about oceanography? I knew the answer to that. You learn. <laughs> So he actually did it in a little, I think it was close to a year and a half, something like that. It turned out to be less about the equatorial undercurrent than the dynamics of the thermocline, which was even more important. And we realized that pretty soon into the... He did produce an undercurrent. It wasn't a terribly realistic one because it was in the entire layer below the surface layer. Yeah. So the uh, thermocline is the, 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 it was above the, the transition between the warm water at the top of the tropical ocean exactly. and the cold water below. It was it, in so the wrong it. place because the actual undercurrent is in the thermocline. This was above the thermocline. Hmm. It was the way it had to be. Below water in the surface layer sets up a pressure gradient, and the countervailing current is in the layer below the surface layer, but above the thermocline. That was the undercurrent. Not great, but it was an undercurrent. By the time Mark was started on that, I had run out of uh, my two years of postdoc, and uh, a number of us had been going to Lindzen's uh, evening seminar. At Harvard, I guess. At Harvard, which had a very standard... This, this is Dick Lindzen, who later became the famous climate denier that we all no. Uh, there was no hint of it then. Yeah. Well, we could talk about that later, right. maybe if we get to it. But Absolutely not. But at this time, he's a, he's a was, young faculty member at Harvard, I guess, and teaching exactly. something interesting. He just, 
he had just come from the University of Chicago. He he attracted a, a number of extremely good uh, graduate students. So the standard uh, format for the seminar, which took place in the evening, was first we all go to a Chinese restaurant, and then we come back and we listen to a seminar. So how many people? Oh. The number who actually went to the Chinese restaurants was probably about 15 or so. Mm. So I remember sitting around one or two round tables at various uh, Chinese restaurants in town. In fact, a rumor started going around that he was the restaurant critic for the Boston Globe. So he would get fantastic treatment and extra dishes and all sorts of other things. How did he pull that off? Uh, because <laughs> somehow whenever a Chinese restaurant opened, he was there. <laughs> He never said anything, but that seemed to be the rumor. Okay. All right. So you're going to Lindsay's seminar with all these guys. So so he says, what are you doing next year? I said, I don't have a job yet. I'm going to start looking. And he said, uh, uh, you want a postdoc at Harvard? And I said, sure. What do I have to do? He says, nothing. You have a postdoc at Harvard. So It was a different time. It was, I, I guess Nixon's uh, attacks on physics either were had you, this, everything had recovered or oceanography was meteorology were different. It was different. It was much better to be a meteorologist and oceanographer than it was to be a physicist. Yeah. Uh, so I went there, and as it turns out, I spent twelve years at Harvard. I did uh, not realize that twelve years. Yep. After, well, but not that. Well, okay. So, but you're at Harvard. So this is when you're working with Mark Kane on the. Late, you know what became these famous papers on theoretical right. dynamical we finished, oceanography. We finished those papers. I started getting interested. Well, in, but, but do you want to just say a little bit about them? Because this oh, is a kind of a big deal for both the, what happened uh, later in your career and his. I mean, uh, yeah, I suppose uh, it was basically the first three papers were various aspects of the dynamics of the uh, thermocline. The first paper on the equator in the Pacific uh, or in general near, near the equator. Yeah. Uh, the first thing we found that it's not about waves, it's about signals. Uh, if, you, if you start blowing a wind, what happens is that the thermocline starts moving, and that's all it can do is start moving. Uh, it, there's no wave action because the original, the wind itself doesn't have any particular frequency attached to it. You just start a wind, and then you get a response, and the response is the signal. It travels with wave motions or wave speeds, but it's not a wave itself. Yeah. It has wave structures, but it's a signal. So, so let me try to, again, try to translate this a little bit. So the, uh, Half the oceanographers I know still don't understand this. Well, well, but I just want to even set up, understanding what you're really saying is, is challenging, but to just at least have the framework be clear. Sure. So, so it's the, equa the, the, near, the tropical ocean, we believe is mostly controlled by the winds that blow on the surface and push the water one direction or the other. And slightly by the, by the heat fluxes, but that's, slightly by it's, the, most, it's mostly the winds. Yeah, so the winds put the ocean into motion, but you have, um, it's not that they simply make the water go in the direction that the wind is blowing, but they change the, uh, the density structure beneath the ocean. So they exactly. change, with the, the, there's the light water on top of the heavier water and the thermocline in between. And the winds change the depth of that, and that sends ripples that are kind of like the waves on the surface of the ocean, but they're a little bit more complicated because the rotation comes into play and all that. So those are the Kelvin-Rossby waves. And what you guys were doing was figuring out how when the wind blows, that sets off these various 
ripples that move around through the ocean. And this is eventually going to become the theory of El Nino events, although it... Not quite. Well, but it was essential to it. It I mean, was essential. Knowing what the thermocline did was absolutely essential. Yeah. and But, in the, but your point was how to think about the reaction to these winds exactly. in terms of not waves, which is the wave paradigm is sort think of, of very wave, common in our field. You think of waves as something with a frequency. This, right. this had no frequencies attached to it. So there's information moving through the ocean, and this is eventually going to be, become essential to El Nino theory. But but so you're working on this. You did that. And then Wait. somehow... Oh. First part was we did that. Second part was we bounded it. What happens when you start putting reflections? So these are the walls at either side of the ocean, the the, the The continents. Third part is what happens when you have north-south walls. There are a few places in the ocean where you have that. Gulf of Guinea, for example. Yeah. Uh, It's it's sort of a mathematical problem without that. So it's, I mean, you're very much starting out in the sort of physics tradition of you you make the simplest thing. You have an ocean that's just, uh, you know, goes on forever then you add some coastlines, but they're straight. Then you put a coastline somewhere else, and you're building your way up towards something exactly. that looks like the actual ocean on the earth. So, okay. So so you do those, and you were about to get it to how you left uh, Harvard. Uh, I went to PMEL. Oh, uh, Pacific Marine Environmental Laboratory right. in, in Seattle. Seattle. I got tenure immediately. Which is NOAA uh, no, no Lab. National, you were a, right. So you were uh, a federal employee? or you were? Yeah, I was oh. a federal employee. Okay. Uh, and... Money and politics raised its head again. Uh, I remember the head of the laboratory was spending a lot of money on tsunamis. And I kept asking him where he's getting this money. He didn't want to say how his money was being spent. So needless to say, within two years, I was persona non grata uh, with the administration at PMEO. So I didn't have a job again. Uh, Mike Wallace said, uh, well, if you come to the university, we can make you a research uh, faculty. Mm-hmm. So again, I was in this. That's months. also a 12 month soft money job. Exactly. So I did that for a few years. Uh, turns out, my first quasi student was Dave Battisti because he was working. Wow. He was working with uh, Dennis Hartman on something, and Steve Zibiak had come to give the talk about his model, and I said, "David, there should be a, this model is really simple. There should be a way of analyzing it and figuring out what the actual mechanism is." Uh, Although Steve Zibiak said he had done that, I was never satisfied. Okay, by wait it. a second. So, so let's explain this again. So, so Kane and Zibiak, Mark Kane and Steve Zibiak, have made this model, which is the first model to predict El Nino. The first model to simulate El Nino. Simulate El Nino. Well, they did forecasts. What Afterwards, year are we? Oh. We are in nineteen. Uh, let's see, eighty-eight and nine. Well, they had. I thought the, they had done forecasts the, already the in 1986, but maybe they didn't. The forecast wasn't, no, the forecast wasn't 80. I'm not real good at dates, but I thought the forecast was 88. It might have been 86. I think that, it, I actually just talked to Mark about this recently, and I think that they forecast that one, but I can't remember if they actually got it published or not. They had some trouble publishing it. 
Um, and uh, but anyway, they had this model that could simulate El Nino. Right. You guys believed that it had captured they, the mechanism. They said they had a theory for El Nino. Right, but, but it was a piece of computer for, code, actually. Th that's the way I looked at it. They, yeah. they think of it slightly differently. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you said to uh, Batisti, why don't you try to figure out yeah, how I this said actually there has, works? There really has to be a detailed mechanism for that. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't want to miss this point because it's like we, we talk about the hierarchy of models and the point was that so these guys had a model which by today's standards is simple. By the standards of the time, it actually wasn't that simple because I think it took them quite a bit of computer power at the time to, to run it. Uh at a time when there was no computer power. Yeah, sure, sure. But but so it was as complicated as it could reasonably be for, sure. the, for the time. This thing is probably 15 times faster than the VAX yeah, that we had. Yeah, that's my laptop. Yeah, sure. But, but, but so they had this model that could be used to predict El Nino, whether they had actually made a formal prediction or not, you believed that it could do it. But but it wasn't simple enough to fully understand how it did that. Exactly. And so you, having come from this tradition of physics and doing the simplest thing possible said, let's make an even simpler one that explains how this model that can predict El Nino's, but what's actually going on in there in a way that we can understand it better. Exactly. Uh, and Pencil and paper, preferably. Batisti did a fantastic job. And my, my first uh, hire at the Joint Institute for the Study of Atmospheres and Oceans was a person named Tony Hurst. Yeah, uh, I know this name. I, I had gotten... That. Tony Hurst did a number of instability models of ENSO. He basically took an atmosphere and an ocean, coupled them together analytically, and looked at how uh, the modes either grew or didn't grow. What, which modes grew, which modes did not grow. So in some sense, it was a prototype model for ENSO. Uh, and, and I did some more work on that uh, with a postdoc named Wakata, we could have gotten something close to a theory for ENSO had Zubiak and not and Kane not done it first. Right, uh, but but wait, so so okay, so you're at Washington. Your research. I just want to get the, the sure. whole all the pieces right. You're at Washington. You're a research professor. You, you take Dave Batiste on as a student. You're explaining ENSO, but then you mentioned the Joint Institute. He was never formally my student. He was always Hartman's student. But you were the one doing the yeah. the advising, really. I mean, I don't think Hartman was involved in those papers no. or anything. So, um, and then there was the Joint Institute for the Study of the Atmosphere and Ocean. That was a NOAA lab, some kind of Joint Institute. It was a PMEL uh, University of Washington. And who's made that happen? Uh, Wallace, Wallace okay. uh, with a man named Fletcher, uh, basically Noah wanted sources of expertise, and what better source of expertise than the universities, and what better way of doing it is to place these institutes where you already had a NOAA installation like yeah. PMEL. Yeah. So they, so they, they kind of gave, gave some sense of a, a funding commitment yeah. that and supported I, a, And I got a certain amount of that funding commitment. So that stabilized things for you a bit? A or? little bit. A little yeah. bit. It wasn't, it wasn't all that much. A couple of months, if I remember right. Hmm. Uh, I got a paper to review by Tony Hurst, and it was a uh, simple coupled atmosphere-ocean model no elaboration of surface layers or anything like that. It was just uh, an atmosphere as given by a wind, an ocean as given by a single thermocline, uh, and a coupling, mm. which is the, 
the fact that the wind puts stress on the ocean. And he goes through this entire thing. He, he did his PhD at Wisconsin for John Young, although he did it by himself. I thought it was remarkable. I thought it was just an incredible piece of work. So I called him up and we talked about it a little bit. And I said, uh, where are you going for postdoc? And he says, well, I have offers from GFDL, Philander, and from Kane at uh, Lamont. And I says, well, is there anything we can do to get you to come to Seattle? And he says, yeah, my wife needs a job. Uh, Sue, she was a programmer. Yeah. So the, the administrator of Jaseo sends a note around to everybody that Jaseo interacts with. And uh, the head of the group that put out the moorings in the ocean, uh, Bruce Taft, needed somebody. The moorings in the ocean would take data from instruments below the ocean uh, on a wire, bring them up to the surface. There were surface measurements of meteorological parameters, winds, humidity, uh, solar radiation, all the usual things. And then they had to be radioed, radioed uh, to a satellite. Uh, the software that determined how the instruments radio to the satellite needed to be written, and Suhurst did that. Wait, I, I first want to take a step back to to notice how small this world is because. You have this smart guy coming out of Wisconsin, right? You want to hire him. You think he can do something. And you're competing with your two old buddy. You know, you have Philander Absolutely. at GFDL Absolutely. and Kane at Lamont. And you're at Washington, which are still kind of three of the top institutions. And it's your three, your two classmates from exactly the same time. And you're all fighting over this guy. Yep. It's kind of funny. It's 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 not as much like that now as it used to be, but it it, it still is a little bit. I mean, it's still well, not such a big world in some uh, ways. It was, yeah, you're right. There was a much smaller world at the time. But we got Sue a job. And because yeah. we got Sue a job. Uh, and that, Tony, that's, of course, still a, a big issue, too. You still have a way to recruit good people is to get right. their spouse a job. Uh, and Tony Hurst uh, spent his time mostly at Giseo and started working with. Uh, uh, Battisti. Battisti did a, an analysis of all the wave motions, and he understood how the waves interact and what and what turned the entire thing around. Hurst and Battisti then made a model uh, of this process, an analytic model of this process, uh, and came up with re the retarded oscillator equation, which was an extremely simple equation. It was the rate of change of surface temperature as given by the local rate of change of temperature and the remote rate of change of temperature as induced by the traveling signals. Right. So this is a theory for El, for El Nino events now. We could say that's what exactly. it is, that you could write in a pencil and paper. I learned it as delayed oscillator. Maybe delayed that's oscillator. a more politically correct name I think for you're it, probably I right. Guess. And Tony uh, and... Uh, Battisti went through the entire thing of the analysis. The delayed oscillator equation is a very interesting equation because it looks linear, but it's not mm -hmm. uh, because things depend on the magnitude of the coefficients. Yeah. Uh, and Tony did a fantastic job at uh, explaining the entire thing. And it looked very much like 
the parameter dependence of the, the delayed oscillator equation looked very much like what happens in the real model. So it was actually a remarkable piece of work. Uh, at roughly the same time, Paul Schopf and Max Suarez did something similar, but they assumed a degree of nonlinearity that uh, Hurst and Battisti did not. And that's still on the table a little bit. Anyhow, that's it's okay. not that important. So um, this time, I mean, so you probably uh, shouldn't go through the whole rest of your career in the detail that we did the first part of it because we're still in the 80s now. And there's and we're and it's thirty plus years later, but um, but but so, so you stayed in Washington until you retired. I, I got there in the early '90s, so it wasn't that long. Maybe it was ten years or so after this. I yeah. mean, Batisti would have got his PhD. I'm trying to think. He's maybe well, eighty-eight, I think, eighty-nine. Yeah, so he's like, like ten years ahead of me. So yeah. you're right. So I got okay. I got there. No, sorry, I got there in '98. I got, I got my PhD in '98. I came to Seattle '98. So. So basically, after that, you kind of you still you're still at Jaseo. You had well, a bunch of students at some point in the nineties. Uh, I remember distinctly remember this. Uh, they always told me I hadn't published enough. Uh, so at some point in the early nineties, for various reasons, I had 13 papers in various stages of publication, submitted, uh, accepted, published, various other things. And when the raises come at the end of the year, I get the same raise I've always gotten. I was <laughs> furious yeah. and I was ready to leave. And I wrote a letter yeah. to the chair saying, uh, you're supposed to have a merit system. I go through this entire thing. Obviously, you don't have a merit system. Uh, I'm leaving. And I intended to leave. Mm -hmm. uh, and I started writing and looking for jobs. And they came up with uh, four and a half months of hard money. Uh, In perpetuity. Which is all I ever got. I never got. But I mean, they said at that point, you're going to have yes. four and a half months. Up to that point, it had been zero? or had been It had been zero. Uh, it then became, I then became on the academic scale, I was on the research scale before, right. so I could go to faculty meetings. Uh, and Four and half, we should say here that the typical academic uh, regular faculty position with tenure and everything is nine months. So four and a half would be half of that. Right. Yeah. I had to raise seven and a half months a year, which yeah. wasn't as bad as 12 months a year, but still was hard as my salary yeah, gradually sure. uh, got We have high. a lot of people still doing it, by the way, and it's oh, only gotten worse. But I understand. In a lot of ways, I was at exactly the right time, at exactly the wrong time. The, the wrong time for physics, the right time for meteorology, but the wrong time uh, for getting tenure. That plus the peculiar dynamics of uh, the University of Washington. It had an atmospheric sciences department in which I was considered an oceanographer and an oceanography department in which I was considered a climate scientist. And we should say, I mean, that at the period that you were, at, 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 at like your first, I don't know, 10 or 20 years at Washington was, well, maybe even starting before that, but around that time, it, it basically gets established as kind of the best place in the in the country, maybe the world to do, to study the atmosphere. Although the oceanography department is somewhere else on the other side of campus and they don't really talk that much, but. At all. I was the only person who would go to both uh, faculty yeah. meetings, for example. 
it's a very odd system because it's a system almost guaranteed to make climate studies impossible. Right. But my impression is that, and because I know, you know, several of your former students, one of them, Michaela Biasuti, is here, sure. and I've worked with her for many years. So, I mean, the picture I have is that, in some sense, following the trajectory of the rest of the field, in some ways, you moved from these theoretical studies with pencil and paper to a bit more interaction with data and computation, but but focusing on climate variability uh you know the, the the tropical pacific still not just el ninos but longer time scales and all these yeah, things and let me explain why um i had taken a course in i forgot what it was called the human dimensions of climate change with a remarkable man named ed miles uh, who, at washington at washington so while a faculty member you, you sat in the class exactly in what and, department was it? Uh, he was a political scientist, but he had appointments in, what did they call it? Uh, it was something like, uh, God knows. Well, I mean, what made you do it? How do you? Uh, because I was, I was interested in global warming. I was interested... Uh, not only in the scientific aspects, but the other aspects. And I remember once uh, Miles in class says, what do you think, he asked the class, what do you think uh, we are going, not what could we do, but what do you think we are going to do about global warming? And so this every, is like the late 80s? Or, this know? was in the 90s. Uh, he was an expert on the law of the sea. Uh, he started the Climate Impacts Group uh, because he had worked on the IPCC, International Program on Climate, Intergovernmental Panel, Program, Panel on Climate Change, sorry. Uh, and he was very dissatisfied with the way they did things because the IPCC in its volume it had three volumes. This is the first one after Kyoto, This was the right? second one. The second one. Uh, the first volume was The Science of Global Warming. The second one was The Applications of Global Warming or The Impacts of Global Warming. And the third was What to Do About Global yeah, Warming. There's still structures that way. Yeah. And what he was particularly unhappy about was how they defined scale. So when they talked about regional scale, they talked about the continent, the continental scale. And he says, we don't do adaptation on, on continental scales. Right. We do, we do adaptation on a scale far more local than that. Yeah. And he, he set up the climate impacts group, uh, with NOAA's, uh, funding specifically to start looking at a scale nobody had actually ever looked at before, which was the local scale. And I started thinking about it also. Uh, I was good friends with Ed Miles. Uh, he was one of the few non-scientists ever to be elected to the National Academy of Sciences because his work on the impacts of global warming was exceptional in every possible way. So he's a political scientist, yep. got interested in global warming, and climate adaptation, which at that time was not something was, the politically active were exactly. interested in. And I realized relatively early, because I actually looked at some uh, 
charts for this. When you look at surface temperature, for example, averaged over the entire globe, the annual cycle is small and variability is small blips on that, maybe a tenth of a degree uh, year to year. Uh, and you see a trend with a little bit of uh, blips. Yeah. As you get to smaller and smaller scales, the variability gets larger and you can hardly see the trend. After all, the trend is a hundredth of a degree a year, one degree in a hundred years yeah. centigrade. Uh, so I began to realize uh, mitigation, namely cutting down carbon, uh, is global and mostly about the trends. Yeah. Adaptation is local and it's mostly about the variability as modified by global warming. Yeah. So it's the variability that counts. The variability has always been of tremendous interest to me because that's what you're actually adapting to. The variability in its natural state, we all have to adapt to variability even if there was no global warming. And then the variability as modified by global warming yeah. in ways that hopefully we will understand later. Now, unfortunately, the IPCC does a, a great job with global warming on a global scale, does a horrible job with global warming on a local scale. And the reason it does a horrible job is, well, it doesn't do the variability correctly of those modes we know to be variability. Uh, the North Atlantic Oscillation, the South Atlantic Oscillation, those things. They claim they do a good job about ENSO, but what they don't tell you is that the heat source in the mean is 1,500 kilometers to the west of where it should be. Now, if Seattle, which is sort of like, and there's extra cold water on the equator and the winds are so, too strong. So we're talking now about how climate models predict uh, the, the average climate as well as the variations. And so when they're, they're big and, errors. And they're not independent. Yeah. And so when you want to go to the local scale and predict what's going to happen in some specific place, right. some city or whatever, the things are going to be wrong, even though the big picture, the way climate scientists look at the map from far away is okay. I, believe entirely the results about uh, their mitigation results about global scales. I don't believe at all the results about local scales. Seattle uh, presumably is affected by the planetary waves emitted from the major region of persistent precipitation in the tropics, which lies over the maritime continent, Borneo, Sulawesi, things like that. If it's too far to the west and the winds are too strong, then it's effectively a La Nina condition. And in fact, all yeah. the models have Seattle too cold yeah. as it is during it. Yeah. I mean, it's a bit better now than it was in the early 90s, but it's still, so the question still not is, uh, great. It hasn't been solved. And I don't think it can be solved because I think the way we build models is fundamentally flawed. We, How so? We do it by thinking of a model as a collection of processes. Uh, so that if you want to improve what's happening to the heat source, you improve the cumulus parameterization or you include, you improve some process. Yeah. Well, we've done that through four iterations of CMIP, uh, the coupled modeling intercomparison program, and it hasn't worked. There's something fundamentally wrong with that idea. 
So how come nobody has sat down and say, why is the heat source too far to the west? What is the dynamics of that? Uh, by by going directly to the processes, it seems to me we're making a fundamental. It's reductive. We're I don't know that nobody thinks about it, but they haven't figured. People haven't figured out a way right. to. Well, I've suggested a, like one thing, and that is suppose it's a resolution problem in the following sense: the Andes are too low because you don't resolve them. Therefore, when winds blow across the Andes, they don't exert enough pressure. Yeah. Therefore, they don't force the earth enough. Yeah. Uh, since torques have to even out, you have to get enough forcing someplace else. The equator is the usual spot. Maybe the easterlies are too strong for that reason. It wouldn't be too hard to do experiments. On but that. if it was really how well you're resolving the Andes, then eventually resolution it is, is going to fix that. Yes, but what a crappy way of looking at things. <laughs> well, I mean, you should... I mean, why did we have to go through four iterations where, with improving the stratosphere and putting in a better, uh, a better chemical model and looking to see if it improved uh, the location of the heat source? It has nothing to do with it. It's not a process problem. It's something different that you should be able to figure out. Now, I would think that a modeler could adjust the pressure on the too low Andes, making it higher, for example, by whatever process uh, the winds exert pressure, and yeah. artificially do it and see if that affects the location of yeah. the heat source. But they don't do that. Right. They just improve the model in general and say, hmm, it, this didn't work. Let's not talk about that. So when they, yeah. they talked about ENSO. Well, the ambitions for the models have gotten so great now, whether it's system modeling and all these processes, that I think the, the impulse, which, you know, I share to some extent, is that it should all be, or you know, you should try to represent the whole system. And rather than forcing certain things to be right by. This is it, so fundamental for adaptation. Yeah. This is so fundamental for adaptation. I would like to do some engineering yeah. uh, to get that right on the basis of really understanding why it's wrong. And yeah. it's not wrong because the cumulus parameterization is bad. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is a real fundamental tension in the field between, you know, you, for, for adaptation, you need very, I mean, when we talk to, I mean, I'm somebody, who, you know, I, I, I got into the field a lot later, but, you know, I started out doing what I would call very basic research and now work on some more applied things. And mm -hmm. so I end up in rooms with people who are, you know, thinking about how to apply our science to whatever pragmatic human issue. And they, of course, they always say we need more accurate things on the local scale. And, and the ways to do that are ultimately engineering of one kind or another. You bias correct things or you use statistical modeling, you downscale this way and that way. And, you know, that's what you have to do. But at the same time, the ambition for the global models is to, there's so much pressure on them to do, to solve so many different problems that, and also to some extent, I mean, one could make the case that maybe this is a problem that just, you do need a certain amount of computer power to, to do it right. And if we wait another 10 years, we'll have it and then things will be better. This is a problem that you have to wait a hundred years to get that scale of resolution. Yeah, but they are a lot. I mean, when I was, you know, when I started in the field, so I, I got into, started grad school in the early nineties, there was not coupled model. I mean, there were coupled models, but oh, they were no. terrible. They were all flux adjusted, which means forced to do the right answer. And it was like, who knows when we'll have coupled models. And then all of a sudden, a few years later, boom, everybody had coupled models and it was fine. They weren't that bad. And now they're, you know, so that, I mean, things have gotten a lot better. I think one should be too cynical. It goes to the fundamentals of, uh, 
constructing a model. Uh, if, if as a adaptation person, I have to bias correct a model statistically in order to get the input uh, for adaptation results, yeah. I might as well use a statistical model at the beginning. Why should I use a statistical right. model on a on a global circulation? Well, the problem, model? I guess, with climate change is how are you going to, you know, statistical models aren't going to do the whole thing for you because you're going to go out a sample, right? You're going to see conditions that you haven't seen before. So a statistical model on its own, uh, I mean, this is what the insurance industry is grappling sure. with now. I talk to a lot of people in this industry. They model disasters by basically looking at the historical record and filling in the gaps with some kind of, you know, Monte Carlo or statistical procedure. Yep. And they don't really know how to think about climate change yet because even though they know it's happening, they're not, you know, in denial. But they have to – they have to think out a sample. And the, the way that uncertainty works is different. You know, you have to trust one model instead of a different one or you have to decide how to hmm. represent the – and it's very – It's a fair point. But so, a, I mean – But it's also a fair point that why did we have to suffer through four iterations, four fundamental iterations of global climate modeling without a hope of solving a basic scientific problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe people had hope, but I don't know. But so, I mean, so in your work on variability, which is motivated by adaptation, even I guess you're saying from the beginning, I mean, well, you were working on... on it was always in my mind. That yeah. That's, that's the, so how close did you get to adaptation science? I mean, did you engage uh, in, in impact oriented projects? Did you do stakeholder engagement? Have you done all that oh, kind of yeah. stuff? All of, uh, the Climate Impacts Group was probably one of the very first groups to do that. With whom? Uh, I, uh, gee, we have meetings with uh, the Seattle Water uh, Commission, mm -hmm. uh, with the tribes who have their own interests, uh, especially in streams. Uh, the tribes and the farmers, for example, are at odds because the tribes want clean streams with salmon yeah. and the farmers want maximum agricultural output, uh, sure. or, or having cow, maximum number of cows yeah. and the cows crap in the streams and it's still going on. It's still going on. Maybe worse. Yeah. So uh, you went to these, so the Pacific, so you're, so the adaptation work was focused in the Pacific Northwest. And you got engaged in these talking to people and... Yeah, I, I, I can't say that I've made any fundamental contributions to that, but I was sort of around to be the dynamics person for the, for the group. Uh, the group, now it's a person named Guillaume Moget, who's, who's really very good. But they do some very practical problems. They do problems of uh, what would happen if you take dams away. Uh, what is the reliability coefficient for hydroelectric power as the snowpack becomes less reliable? Uh, what is the ultimate effect uh, of, of global warming on salmon? That actually turns out to be quite complicated. Uh, what Ed Miles did was absolutely brilliant in order to kickstart this group. Uh, he went to a number of experts in various fields, a person in hydrology at the University of Washington, a person in hydrology, a person in forestry, a uh, person in fisheries. Uh, and he says, look, I will pay your summer salary and support a graduate student. And I only have one requirement. The graduate student work on something of interest, and the faculty member comes to a weekly s seminar. So in the first few seminars, somebody would give a talk, and somebody else would say, 
that really affects what I do. So the guy who was working on hydrology was being affected by the guy who was working in forestry because the forests affect how, affects how much water comes from the snowpack and reaches the streams, for example. It was like every seminar was an event because every seminar people would see the connections between what they did and what other people did. That He made that happen. He made that happen within a year. So it was a remarkable experience. You know, I, I watched this happen. It really is an event in the culture or the sociology of accomplishment. Uh, it was yeah. remarkable. It was truly remarkable. So out of it now. So you retired a few years ago, and, and amazingly you, enough, it's been eleven years. And you don't, and you really retired. You're not actually, I, or are you still writing papers and things? No, I totally wrote the book. Um, yeah. After retirement. Yeah, I teach out of that thing. Oh, the, basically, I in a normal situation, I would have had tenure. I'd be teaching 101 as I was writing the book, but. Having never taught 101, uh, <laughs> I couldn't stay on and do that. So the only way to, the book was going to get done is if I yeah. retired. So the first two or three years of my retirement was the book. It's a good book. And after that, I'm pretty much out of it. I read art books now. That's good. All right. Well, should we leave it there? I think that's a good... We didn't cover the later phases in as much depth, but... Um, Maybe another four or five hours. It's a fascinating uh, time. Okay. Thanks, Ed. My pleasure. All right. Okay. What a conversation. So much interesting history there, and Ed tells it like it is always. So happy that he took the time to talk to me on this very first interview we ever recorded for this podcast over a year ago. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli. Our editing and audio post-production is by Duotone Audio Group, where our editor and post-producer is Dana Hamm, and our audio engineer is Chrissy Lassiter. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection. Deep Convection.